We'll be reading from Matthew 12, verses 33 through 37. Matthew 12, 33 through 37 in the English Standard Version. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of the good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. According to a Reader's Digest article, someone can identify where you're from, or at least where you grew up, by noting just eight different things that you say, or the terms that you have for eight different things. So, for instance, if you were to refer to one of those bugs that has a light on it, and you see them at night, if you were to refer to it as a firefly, you're probably from out west. But if you refer to it as a lightning bug, you're probably from the east. And if you were to refer to your athletic footwear as a tennis shoe, then you're with the vast majority of the United States. But if you called them sneakers, you're probably from New England. And if you refer to them as gym shoes, you might be from either Chicago or Cincinnati. And what about what we call household, excuse me, what we call the sale of household items? See, in southern states, we typically refer to it as a yard sale, as does much of New England. But from the Midwest to the Rockies, it's primarily called a garage sale. Over there on the West Coast, they can't figure out what they're going to call it. And then in, in western Massachusetts and Connecticut, it's referred to as a tag sale. And a portion of eastern Wisconsin calls it a rummage sale. What about what we throw our trash in? In the southern half of the states, the prominent term is the trash can. But in the northern, most northern states of our country, it tends to be referred to as a garbage can. And this one is the one I found the most interesting. What we drink from in public places. Now we, here on the east coast and in the south, would refer to it as a water fountain. While the west coast and much of the Midwest refers to it as a drinking fountain. But there are these New Englanders and these Wisconsinites that call it a bubbler. I don't know where they got that term from, but that's what they call it. Of course, the ones we're most familiar with is this one, what we call carbonated beverages. Go back. Oh, I missed the semi-truck 18-wheeler and so on. Sorry, we're moving on to Coke now because it's the most important one. In the South, carbonated beverages are called a Coke. Of course, in the West, they're soda, and in the Northeast, they're soda, and then those weird states up North in the Midwest are, call it pop. Jack, don't start. 
And then the one we're probably the most familiar with, what we call a group of people. Here in the South, it's y'all. The rest of the country says, you guys. Or, except for parts of New York and New Jersey where yous still appears once in a while. In other words, the way you say things has the ability to identify where you're from. Your words can reveal something about your identity. That's the idea I want us to think about today. Your words have the ability to reveal something about your identity. And we're going to spend both services today talking about words. I don't do this very often, but consider this part one of a two-part message that will be continued tonight. So I want to encourage you to return this evening to hear another message on this very same topic as we round it out with our evening service tonight. But this morning, I want us to focus to focus on why our words matter. This evening, we'll do a little bit of word math and talk about what kind of words we need to subtract from our vocabulary and what kind of words we need to add to our vocabulary. But I want to begin tonight by looking at James chapter 1, and verse 26. James chapter 1 and verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now, did you catch that? Did you catch what James says here? He says that your religion is worthless if you do not control your tongue. Your spirituality, your faith is worthless if you do not control your tongue. I think that proclamation by James is pretty serious. Something that we need to take into account more than we do because if your religion is worthless, what does that say about your eternity? So your words matter. And what I find so fascinating here is the implication of what James is saying. According to James, the litmus test of our spirituality is not so much whether we attend regularly all the assemblies of the body of Christ. And it's not whether we participate in evangelistic efforts. It's not whether we pray regularly or, or whether we study our Bible regularly or how much we give. The litmus test of our spirituality is our words, according to James. And all that is to make the point that words matter. But why do they matter? Why do our words matter so much? Why are they so important? Why should we take time out this Sunday to spend both services talking about our words? Well, let me review four things with you today. Our words matter because they reflect our hearts. That's the number one reason why our words matter. Because what you speak, what you say, what you write, what you post... All of your words communicate something about you from the inside out. That which has your heart will also have your words. Scripture recognizes this close affiliation between the heart and the mouth. 
It's in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 18 that Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Its origins are within you. And then in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45, Jesus added this. He said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words originate within your heart, and there is this close connection between your mouth and your heart. Jesus indicated that the source of your words is from within you. And so your words reveal something about you. And David understood this. That is why he prayed in Psalm chapter 19 and verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David's prayer acknowledged that the words he spoke were directly influenced by the thoughts on which his heart meditated. Maybe that's why Paul instructed us to think about whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Maybe he was giving us a filter to apply to our minds so that the rest of our person, especially our, our, our mouth, would not be contaminated. And you got to think. If our words are revealing something about our heart, shouldn't we take them more seriously? Since God is in the business of examining hearts, as evidenced by his declaration to Samuel that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And, and since God wants to possess our hearts, as evidenced by the greatest command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, since God is in the business of examining the heart and wants to possess your heart, then our words are going to matter especially to him because they reveal that to which our heart is devoted. So one reason our words matter is because they reflect our hearts, but another reason our words matter is because they communicate our faith. Your words play an essential role in identifying you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to, before I, I expound on this, I want to take you back to the book of Judges very quickly. To Judges chapter 12, because there's this incredibly unique story that unfolds during the uh, time period of Jephthah. It's in Judges chapter 12, and what we have is a situation where Je Jephthah has delivered Israel from the Ammonites, and he's succeeded in defeating those enemies, but now he's found himself at war with a fellow tribe. The tribe of Ephraim has criticized Jephthah for not including them in the fight against the Ammonites, and so they've gone to war against him. As the story goes, Jephthah and his army successfully defeated the Ephraimites, but there were some fugitives that fled from the battle. So Jephthah's men set up a checkpoint at a particular location along the Jordan River that was used as a crossing. To, he set his military up there to try and capture those Ephraimite fugitives. And then beginning in Judges chapter 12 and verse 5, the text indicates that when a fugitive from Ephraim requested to cross the river, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth, 
And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. In other words, the Ephraimites were identifiable by their words. And guess what? You are too. Because your words reveal who you are and who you are associated with. Your words communicate your faith. They will confirm your connection to Christ or they will refute your relationship with Him. And it's all because our words play a pivotal role in communicating our faith. Think about it. Becoming a Christian entails the use of words because you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, according to Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. And based on that confession, you are then baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, as exemplified by the eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And as a Christian, you are expected to worship God, which entails the use of words because it involves singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And you can't do that without words. And as a Christian, you're expected to proclaim the gospel, which entails the use of words, because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And this is exemplified when Philip encountered that eunuch in Acts chapter 8, and we're told that he opened his mouth, and beginning with this passage in Isaiah, he told him the good news about Jesus. Proclaiming the gospel entails words. And as a Christian, you're expected to set an example for fellow believers in your speech, according to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. And you're expected to employ gracious speech that is metaphorically seasoned with salt when it comes to those who are outside the body of Christ, according to Ephesians. In other words, your speech is expected to be exemplary, whether you're dealing with fellow Christians or you're dealing with those who are outside the body. The point is that you cannot become a disciple or fulfill your responsibilities as a disciple without words. You can do it without speaking, but you cannot do it without words. Your words matter because they communicate your faith. And in the process of communicating your faith, they identify your association with Jesus Christ, just like the Ephraimites' words identified them as members of that tribe. Words matter. And they matter not only because they communicate your faith, but they also demonstrate your surrender. Words matter because they demonstrate our surrender. One of, if not the most popular passage in the Bible on our words is James chapter 3. And I want you to turn there with me to James chapter 3. I want to read verses 2 through 8 together. And I want you to catch the impact of what James is communicating in this passage. Starting in verse 2, he says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. 
So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James compares the tongue to a bit in a horse's mouth, a rudder on a ship, and he does so to illustrate how it is a small instrument that has the power to influence the course of one's life. But then James goes on to compare the tongue to a spark that ignites a wildfire. And the point of that metaphor is to show that we as frail human beings are unable to tame our tongues. Do you agree with that assertion? Do you agree that you are not capable of controlling your tongue? I want you to think about it for a moment. Have you ever said or written or posted something that you shouldn't have? Have you ever been insensitive, untimely, or unwise in your selection of words? Have your words ever been used at a time of heightened emotion to criticize or to lie or to accuse or to complain or even to curse? Deep down, I think we all have to admit that we've had moments in our lives in which our words have been out of control. And that's what James is talking about. Our emotions, our emotions especially, can overtake the control of our mouth so that we say or write, or post things that should have never come from within. That's why he says no human being can tame the tongue. But before James said no human being can tame the tongue, here in James chapter 3 and verse 8, he told us back in chapter 1 that we must bridle our tongues if we don't want our religion to be deemed worthless. So which is it, James? We can't tame our tongue, but we're supposed to tame our tongue? How are we going to do that, James? If you said we can't do it, then how are we going to avoid having a worthless religion? I think the answer to that is in James chapter 4. In verse 7, when he said, Submit yourselves therefore to God. We can't tame our tongues on our own, but God can tame our tongues if we relinquish control. That's why our words demonstrate our surrender. If we're willing to give God control over our mouths, over our pens, over our keyboards, then He can exert control. That's what David did in Psalm chapter 141 and verse 3. 
He made this request of God. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. What David does in Psalm chapter 141 is ask God to take control over his speech. He relinquishes that control himself and gives it over to God so that nothing that comes out of his mouth is designed or intended to be uh, antithetical to God's will. The implication of David's words is that God alone has the power and even the right to control our words. So when we acknowledge that we can't tame our tongues and we relinquish control of our words over to him, we are demonstrating our surrender to the reign of God in our lives. And that's another reason our words matter. They show that God's in control. Thus far, we've seen that our words matter. They matter because they reflect our heart. They matter because they communicate our faith. They matter because they demonstrate our surrender. But the most important reason they matter is this. They affect our salvation. I want to take you back to our scripture reading. To Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37. Where Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Give an account for every careless word. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus made two important points in this message. Two important points in this passage. First, he indicated that there is nothing we have said that God has not heard. God is aware of every careless word you have spoken. But more than that, God is aware of every careless word you have thought. Look at what David wrote, Psalm 139 and verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Now, I want you to take this into consideration. That the words don't have to exit your mouth for them to be wrong. The words don't have to be on the piece of paper for them to be wrong. The words don't have to be typed on the screen for them to be wrong. Because they do reflect your heart. And if they're coming from a heart that is wrong... They're wrong. And God knows them before they're ever uttered, before they're ever written, before they're ever posted. And you're going to give an account for every careless word. Since God is aware of every word, we've got to take our words more seriously. But not only does Jesus indicate that there's nothing we have said that God has not heard, he also indicates that everything we have said will impact our eternal destination. And this is not the only time this comes up. This is not the only time that salvation and words are linked in Scripture. 
Just a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, Jesus told his disciples, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Obviously, if Jesus denies us before the Father, that will negatively impact our eternal state. So if we want him to acknowledge us before his Father, then we have the obligation to acknowledge him before people. And that's going to take words. Does your conversation at work or at school or at home or out in the community, does it acknowledge Christ? Do your words that you post on Facebook or the words that you attach to those pictures on Instagram, or the words that you put out there on X, formerly known as Twitter, or the messages you communicate on TikTok, or the text you send to your friends, do they acknowledge Christ? You notice there's only two categories here? Words that acknowledge and words that deny. Which category do your words fall into? But we also need to mention a passage we've already alluded to, and that's Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, which says that in order to receive salvation, one must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, because with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Don't miss the connection between our words and salvation in this passage. You cannot be saved if you never confess the identity of Jesus Christ. That's why whenever someone puts on Christ in, baptize, in baptism in the Lord's church, he or she is asked to say that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I have to be honest with you. My practice up till now has been to ask a question and let them say, I do, or yes. To give an affirmation of the question, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I'm not doing that anymore. For now on, when I take a confession, I'm going to ask, what do you believe about Jesus? And let them fill it in, because they need to make the proclamation. But you know what? I don't think Paul is just talking about a once-and-done deal here. I don't think his objective is for people to confess the identity of Jesus Christ once. I think he intends on it to be something we do constantly. And if you're too ashamed to confess the name of Jesus more than on the day you were baptized then you really need to re-examine your commitment to him. Because confession is part of our identification as his children. And based on these passages, our words are an essential element of our salvation because our belief in and association with Jesus must be verbally declared.
without such a declaration, condemnation will follow. So here's the point. The point is that words matter. Whether they are spoken in conversation, written on a piece of paper, typed on a computer, or posted on a social media platform, words matter. Because they are a reflection of our heart. Because they communicate our faith. Because they demonstrate our surrender. And because they affect our salvation. So before you speak, before you write, before you post... Choose your words carefully because they are more important than you might think. I think that's why the Bible calls us to be quick to listen and slow to speak in James chapter 1 and verse 19. And that instruction should not be limited just to our oral communication. Pictured on the screen is President Calvin Coolidge. He was our 30th president back in the 20s and 30s of the last century. He was famously known as a man of few words. His nickname was Silent Cal. The story is told that on one occasion, a young lady sat down next to him at dinner. And she told President Coolidge that she had a bet with a friend that she could get him to say at least three words in conversation. Without looking at her, he simply responded, you lose. And that was it. President Coolidge understood very well the value of using only carefully considered words. Do you? Do I? We need to start taking our words more seriously. And that's the challenge issued forth today. Be more cognizant of the words you choose. Be more careful with the words you choose because our words matter. This morning, if you have realized that you are not being careful with your words, if you're concerned that your careless words are going to cost you your salvation, then we invite you to do something about that today. And especially if you've never made the confession that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, then we want to encourage you to say those words today. Won't you come while together we stand and sing? Jesus,